This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Thursday morning, the 10th of February. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. If you remember last month, we heard uh, that uh, the Garda division in Eastmead was uh, to be merged with the Garda station in Drogheda. The Minister for Justice at that time had said that Leytown uh, Garda station might be refurbished and we'd see an increase in Garda numbers. I sent a PQ to the Minister a couple of weeks ago just looking for details of the plan. She didn't answer the question, but I put the very same question to the Garda Commissioner and the response I got was there have been no discussions relating to the realignment of Garda boundaries between East Mead and Drogheda and there's been no discussion for additional funding for the Drogheda Garda Division. So which is it, Taoiseach? Is it actually happening? Thank you. Time is up. Who's right, the Minister or the Garda Commissioner? Sinn Féin TD for Loud and East Mead. Melton Munster putting that question to the Taoiseach. Micheál Martin was clearly taken by surprise and had no knowledge of this plan for local policing. These are ma- operational matters for the for the Guardia. I, I, I don't have the details of that specific issue here with me t- today. You'll appreciate that. Yeah, surprisingly, yeah, surprisingly limp, limp answer from the Taoiseach to a parliamentary question. So what's at the bottom of all this? Let's speak first of all to Fergus O'Dowd, who's a Fine Gael TD for Loud and East Mead. Uh, and you must have been very surprised by Imelda Munster's question to begin with, and then by the response uh, from Micheál Martin, because I've been looking back over a letter that you received from uh, the Office of uh, the Guard Commissioner on the 22nd of uh, December. You very kindly sent that on to us. And it's yes, in black and white, isn't it? It says a review of the boundaries. It's in black and white, yeah. yeah. And I think that uh, it is from the Office of the Commissioner. And I'm very happy that that's, a, that's not a forgery. Um, it actually tells the truth. And in fact, the Commissioner previously came to County Loud on the 6th of March 2020. And he said at that meeting, I think Imelda might have been at that as well, that the boundary alignment would be considered under the new Garda operational model. And it has been considered, and that's what my letter says. It is proposed that this realignment will be addressed as part of the rollout of the model. And it also says that uh, the capital programme is currently subject to review, and that Garda Chicana has a refurbishment programme, and that in this regard, later on Garda Station shall be included for consideration. Yeah, there's no guarantee so, over the Garda Station. That's for consideration. No, no, but, but, the no, boundary, but, the, no, but the boundaries no, were very clear. No, but I think the point that Imelda was making was that, was that my statement or the, the other statements were untrue or false in some respect, which they're not. And she says her questions were refused 
Um, I mean, questions are refused regularly from every TD if they're not appropriate to the minister's powers. And the questions that are refused, Michael, they're refused by the office of the town caller. They're not refused by the minister. They must f- fit through the sieve of, is the minister responsible for this area? And the minister is not responsible for the operational matters of the Gardaí. She's responsible for the budget and obviously the 800 new Gardaí that are coming, that have been trained this year. That's all her doing. But the guard, allocate where they go. Mm. And that's so. Imelda okay, needs well, maybe to I misunderstood. I, well, I thought what Imelda Munster was saying was that she got a different response from the Garda Commissioner's office. Uh, Melda Munster is on the line with us. Good morning to you and thanks for joining us. Uh, morning, what, what, can you clarify what's going on here for us? Yeah, well, firstly, I think Fergus needs to jump down off his high horse. I wasn't saying that anything he had said wasn't true. What I was merely doing was um, I originally wrote to the Minister asking her for some clarity and some details. I asked her when the realignment was to take was scheduled to take place. I asked her if additional funding would be made available to the Drogheda Garda Division when the realignment of the, the Garda boundaries takes place and what plans were in place <coughs> to provide a new fit-for-purpose full-time Garda station in East Mead. <coughs> that's, that's what I asked her. You know, I just wanted the details of it. And the response I got back from the minister was, this is an operational matter, so mm. there was no detail in what I asked. Which is pretty so, much what the Taoiseach said to you. Yeah. So I wrote then to, the, to Commissioner Harris, and I asked him the same questions. And I, I, had, I, was, I had specifically asked the same questions. I was looking for details on the plans that he has to provide the new fit-for-purpose Garda Station. I asked him for detail, details of the plans relating to the realignment of the Garda boundaries and also about resources. And the response that I got back then was that um, from the, it came back actually, mm. I sent it to the Commissioner. It came back from corporate services at Garda.ie and it said um, in relation to your questions pertaining to future policing in Drada and East Mead, the following update has been supplied. There have been no discussions at divisional level of any plans to provide a new fit-for-purpose full-time Garda station. There have been no discussions at divisional level of any plans relating to the realignment of Garda boundaries between East Mead and Drada, And there have been no discussions at divisional level of any additional funding that will be made available to the Drogheda Garda station. Oh dear. Now, right. Um, what what, da- what date is on that? I had sent that to the Garda Commissioner on the 27th of January Right. Okay, because there is this letter that Fergus O'Dowd received on the 22nd of December. It's signed by the Chief Superintendent John Dollard at the Commissioner's office on behalf of the Commissioner and it says, as Fergus O'Dowd read out a moment ago, a review of the boundaries between Drogheda and Laytown sub-districts has been carried out and it has been recommended that the boundary lines should be revised to reflect the needs of the community. It is proposed that this realignment will be addressed as part of the rollout of the operation model. Yeah, and that's, I mean, I had accepted that for what it was, and I was looking for details, mm. you know, on it, and when was it going to happen? And that response I got back from the Guardi was on Tuesday the 1st of February. Right. There's something amiss here, clearly, that's, it would seem, Fergus yeah, O'Dowd. That's why I, well, I, I think the difference is that, so I think the difference is that I, I haven't a copy of Amelda's yeah, correspondence. No, nor I. But, no, but I'm accepting everything she's saying there has been what she did. Uh, the question that was answered was a different question to what I was asking. 
I, I was asking about the Drogheda Boundary Review. What Amelda seems to be getting an answer to is the discussions, the divisional discussions about that. You know, but what we have in, from the Garda Commissioner is that they will be realigned. Now, obviously, we both agree, and I agree with Amelda, we want this to happen sooner rather than later. And I presume that's what the discussions are about, but I don't know. Uh, but like, I'm, I'm happy to raise it with the Garda Commissioner again and the Minister, because the Minister also issued a statement uh, around December confirming the veracity of what I have said. And I, 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 does Imelda accept that that is a fact, or does she not? Or mm. is she? Well, she just said she does. Uh, what, 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 what are you suggesting? It's a, an interpretation of the question, and that they're saying, although they didn't say it, that it w- is going to happen, but they're saying that no discussion has taken place on when it's going to happen. Well, I, 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 I haven't seen the question that Melda put in mm. or the letter she got, but from what she's saying, excuse me, <clears throat> that seems to be what she asked. Is that what you did ask, Imelda? No, about? I actually have the copy of the correspondence I sent to Commissioner. So I haven't seen it, Jen. No, I appreciate I, that, Jen. I am writing to you seeking information on policing plans for the East Mead area. Specifically, I would like details on any plans you have to provide a new fit-for-purpose full-time guard station for the East Mead area. I would also like details of any plans relating to the realignment of Garda boundaries between East Mead and Drogheda, including when this realignment is due to take place and any other relevant details. Further to this, I would be obliged if you could forward details of any additional funding that would be made available to the Drogheda Garda Division when the realignment of the Garda boundaries between East Mead and Drogheda take place. That was a very, very specific question following on from the announcement that was made. And the reason I raised it with the Taoiseach was that I was in total shock when I got the response back from the guarded. I think that your update, Imelda, is from the divisional end of the business. But, yeah, but uh, well, no, I, I know who you asked the question to. Don't get me wrong. I'm not, I know who you direct the question as. But, I mean, the, the, hierarchy, the hierarchy of power and decision-making is from the Office of Commissioner, and I have that stamp on my letter. And that's what you need in your answer that you didn't get. Yeah, I've sent further correspondence to the yeah. Taoiseach following that, and I've asked him to investigate the matter and provide clarity. Sure. Because... What I was looking for, and I'm sure we're all looking the same, was clarity. When it's happening... Absolutely, absolutely. Just, just, just explain to us, Imelda Munster, about what happened in the Dáil. Uh, did the Taoiseach have forewarning uh, uh, of your question? No, no it's promised, it's promised ledge, and you can bring up any issue on promised ledge. OK, um, so it was uh, out of the blue, so it was perfectly understandable then that the Taoiseach hadn't been briefed. No, and I accepted that. Yeah. Mm. I accepted that. But I thought, but, yeah. I did actually think, given the Gearan report and the, the, the focus that was put on, that he might be able to shine some light uh, on Well, it'd be a tall ass now to ask the Taoiseach to know about individual guard stations around the country, yeah. I did accept that that's, you know, his answer. But I I wrote to him then following that and asked him would he investigate the matter and provide clarity. I just mm. want to know if it's happening for sure, when it's happening, will there be additional Garda numbers and will the Leighton uh, Garda station will there be a new fit for purpose? Okay, well it sounds as though there's a communication breakdown within on Garda Shia somewhere. Would that uh, yeah. be uh, your uh, well, I think it's very clear that yeah. there isn't it's very clear what the Commissioner's Office is saying. And I think if Imelda 
respectfully, if she had to tell the Taoiseach's office that she was going to raise it, uh, then she would obviously have got a different answer because she would have got the same letter as, as I got. I corresponded um, to the Garda Commissioner and I corresponded. I know you did, yeah. But what happened to your letter was that it went from the Commissioner's office to the, a lower, I don't mean in a rude sense, but a lower operational level. Mm. Whereas the Commissioner. There's something uh, wrong there, though, as well, isn't there, Fergus O'Dowd? She has an official response from Angarda Shiakana, and it's different to the response you have from Angarda Shiakana. You're putting more weight on it because it, it came directly from the Commissioner's office, and that's fair enough. But there's something wrong when a TD is getting wrong information if the information is wrong from uh, an arm of the state such as the Gardaí. Yeah, well, I, as I said, I'd be happy if, she, if I could see her letter. But the main thing is, the main thing is, A, that it is going to happen. And secondly, we will all agree we want that it has to happen sooner rather than later. And I think we will certainly, and I know that Deputy Nash and Deputy Morku and Peter Fitzpatrick, we all want the same thing. We want more Gardaí, we want them better resourced, and we want more modern stations. And that's, that's Mike, we're all pushing that direction. Satisfactory that, you know, that there's no time frame. Yeah, but if you had to tell the Taoiseach, uh, if you had to tell the Taoiseach what you were going to do, you would have got an entirely different answer. So it would look like a publicity stunt, I think. The way you put it, you know. Shots now, Fergus, you're grasping. No, but it was. You, you've acknowledged that you didn't. You didn't give the Taoiseach notice. No, I have. I raised. And you expected the Taoiseach to know the detail, which you couldn't possibly know, Amanda. I raised. Without you telling him. The Garda Commissioner. I got a totally different response to my questions than you got. I wrote to the minister also. She um, said, what is standard? It's an operational matter. And that's so fair. Thought, Her response is what we got as well. Um, raise it with the Taoiseach. I accepted his response that he, would, he doesn't know. But taking aside that, we yeah. still, I still think it's unacceptable that we don't have a time frame for the realignment. We don't even know where the new boundary is going to fall whether it's going to be all of Leytown District sure. or whether it's... But that's a matter for the Gardaí and, and that's for them that's to decide. Why, that's why I was... I mean, Hannah McEntee, the Minister, is quite clear in supporting the change as well. TDs can ask questions. So I represent that. the people, as you know well, because, you know... Yeah, we all do. We all do. Yeah. But, but Amanda, can I ask you a question? The mandate I got from the tell, If you had to tell the Taoiseach in advance what you were going to raise because the of the Taoiseach, local detail. Like your, your would you not have got a different answer? Minister. No, but the Taoiseach may have... But you couldn't possibly know like what you were going to ask. Colleague, this is an operational matter. And I was surprised, actually, that that Minister McEntee said it was an operational matter and didn't give any of the detail, given that she'd actually confirmed the announcement. Yeah. Yeah, but, she, but it's still the announcement says yes, that it it's a matter, yeah. it's the so Gardaí... I asked her for details, she said, no, it's a matter, so I said, right, I'll contact Commissioner Harris, and I did, and I got a total different yeah. answer to you. OK, but you'd be giving out yards, Melda Munster, in fairness, uh, Melda Munster, in fairness, you'd be giving out yards if uh, the Minister for Justice was coming back and telling you exactly what she was planning to do uh, in terms of merging or breaking up guarded divisions and deploying yep. members of Angardashi Econa. They are operational matters. And if the, mini- is, if, exactly. if the Minister was to start talking about those matter. things, uh, we'd be crossing a, a line and it would be impeding on the authority of the Garda Commissioner. That's fair enough, but I wrote to her because she had confirmed the announcement just to see if we could get more detail on when it was going to happen, whether it was going to be extra guards and whether yeah. Leighton Garda Station was going to get a refurbishment. And when I got that response from the Minister, I accepted that. 
And then I wrote to the Garda Commissioner. And I was shocked then that I got an answer that was totally different than what had been said publicly. And all I was looking for was clarity. And Fergus can jump up and down on his high horse if he wants. But I'm I not on the high horse. I'm on the, I'm on, I'm on the facts. If you had to tell the, the Taoiseach of the what facts. you were going to raise, he would have given you the answer. You know that, don't well, you? No, no. Okay. I, I wrote to the, minister, okay, so, the commissioner, the Garda commissioner. Okay, so will you raise it again yeah. in the doll uh, <laughs> with prior warning? Would I? Will yes, you? Well, I've already written to the Taoiseach asking him to provide clarity again. I've told him that I've raised it under promise ledge. And I've now asked him to seek clarity. I told him the confusion about it, that okay. I got a different response. And I asked him, would he, his office look into it and get clarity for, for me on it? OK, and uh, Fergus O'Dowd, uh, you think you already know the response to that, which uh, it has been. It's, it's, it's appropriate and it's um, a common courtesy if you're raising a, a, a local matter that you tell the office of the Taoiseach, look, I'm raising this, this Fair is the issue. This is, hold on a second. Now, you had your say there on this. And I, no, that's what you do. And, no, and you, no, wouldn't, you wouldn't have a question. problem. You wouldn't have a problem. But having said that... Well, I think it's I common. In, in fair, in fair, Imelda Munster, uh, he does have a point. I mean, I think it would be common sense that if you actually wanted an answer, uh, you'd yeah. give somebody uh, advance warning so that they could yeah. find out the answer for you. No, exactly. I specifically raised it because I was shocked. Out of the, the blue. I got... Well, that the Taoiseach would know what's the plans it's for Laytown Garda Station. It's the only time you can get a speaking slot where you can ask anything. anything. That's true, but telling that's, the Taoiseach what you're raising mm. makes it, makes it real but in terms of an answer. Sinn Féin, Sinn Féin has the Garda Commissioner. endless amount of opportunities of putting Fair questions... Nice. Yeah. <laughs> Putting questions uh, that uh, with, with advance warning that uh, can be researched and looked yes. into and answered. Sinn Féin has endless opportunities yes, to do that. But what you don't get, I asked the Taoiseach, well, which is it? I told him the response that I got from but the sure you didn't know what you were talking about. Yeah, and I accepted that. And yeah. that's why yeah. I asked him for further clarity to look into it. Okay. And um, that's what I've done, and I expect him to do that. Okay. Fergus O'Dowd? But it's too important an issue to let slip. Okay. Uh, you'll be happy to get that clarity then, Fergus O'Dowd? Yeah, of course, yeah, yeah no problem okay. at all. And we'd work together, all of us, yeah. and we all have, in fact, because we all met with the Guard Commissioner and, we, <coughs> and the Policing Committee as well. We meet regularly. Okay. And I know the views of the local superintendent and chief superintendent and the people in Nathan Bedistan and the people of Drogheda. Mm. We have more Gardaí. We need more. Mm. We need joined up patrols. And I think everybody need, who, who yeah. relies on the police force wants that joint up approach taken to this corner of uh, the country. And I'm sure. Yeah. When uh, we're told what the time frame is, uh, there'll be a, a lot of people uh, who'll be happy to hear about yeah. that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Look, we we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you both uh, indeed uh, for joining us on the program this morning. Uh, that's uh, Fergus O'Dowd of Finnegale and Amanda Munster of Sinn Fein. Both are TDs for Louth and East Meath. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, the Defence Forces will not be capable of protecting uh, this country. Not a, a meaningful defence of uh, the state against acts of aggression from conventional military forces. That's if we continue as we are. That's according to the Commission on uh, the Defence Forces in a big report, which I'm sure you've been hearing a lot about since we went off air yesterday. Let's speak uh, to Independent Senator Jared Crockwell and also 
also Jim Roach, uh, who is uh, the PRO of the Irish anti-war movement. Jared Crockwell, uh, the report seems to be suggesting there's three options now in going forward. One, that you do nothing, continue with the status quo uh, and face in to the abyss, if you like, uh, where we're vulnerable to attack. Uh, the second is uh, that you spend half a billion, 500 million a year on the Defence Forces so that we're better equipped or you can go for the bells and whistles option of three billion a year uh, and buy all of uh, the equipment and uh, uh, intelligence uh, that is needed to, to protect the country. Which of the three would you be looking at and suggesting? I think, uh, good morning, Michael. Good morning to your listeners and good morning to Jim. I think if, um, what we've got to do is look at what's achievable in the short term. And uh, on that basis, I'd be going for uh, item number two or uh, choice number two, where we've uh, introduced primary radar systems for our air cover and we bring in sonar and uh, radar systems for the ocean uh, space that we cover. It is vitally important that we're aware of what's going Going on in our airspace and what's going on under the sea with the amount of data communication uh, equipment there is running through Ireland or close to Ireland um, we, we have a massive responsibility on the national uh, and international stage to look after this equipment. Okay, Jim Roach would you agree with that? Uh, not completely, good morning Michael good morning. and, and, and Gerard and your listeners as well uh, not completely um, I think what we need, to, and it's very, very interesting, and it takes time to digest it all. But um, what we really need, and it's the point Pat Leahy makes today in the Irish Times, what we need is a political debate about what uh, we want Irish defence forces to do. And I think that's a key point. Uh, at the same time, I would say, first of all, uh, absolutely, that the ordinary defence force members' pay and conditions need need to be addressed, uh, and that has been raised multiple times, and we support that for the ordinary soldiers, the seamen and women. The other thing, obviously, that needs to be done, I think there is something about it in the report, is the treatment of women members. And again, this has been raised by uh, my TU Dublin colleague, Tom Clunan, initially, and then by a really good um a documentary on on, mm-hmm. on RT. So that's key that th- those issues are addressed and they may not cost a lot of money. Uh, but, but you support the like idea of investing in radar and coastal radar systems well, I, and I, cyber I defence? I, I certainly would support that, preferable to, to, to buying uh, 12 fighter jets, which I think is one of the recommendations as well. So absolutely, I, I think it's re- fair enough that we should be spending money on... on uh, um, if you like an, uh, analysing what's what's going on uh, in our airspace and around our country. However, we, we have to look at all the other things that money needs to be spent on in Ireland, and we we know what they are: their housing, health, education are, are the are the three big ones. So they they need to be balanced out against spending money on such systems. Given that uh, we are supposedly a neutral country, and the idea of us being invaded is. Uh, you know, somewhat pie in the sky anyway, and even if we are invaded, what, mm. what are we going to do about it? Yeah, even if we so, invest the so three billion think, a, a year uh, and have... I, I, I think that would be uh, it's highly questionable to do that, but we need to have that debate, and that's why that first point I made about what do we want our Defence Forces to be doing. Alright, Jared Crockwell, what do you want them to be doing? 
Well, it's funny. I find myself very much in line with Jim's thinking, and I'm very much aware of Jim's uh, movement and support very much of what they they do and say. Look, uh, the truth of the matter is Ireland is not likely to be invaded by any major uh, power in the immediate future. Um, And if we get to the stage where we are being invaded, I don't think we're going to be able to repel either the uh, Russians or the Americans, depending on whoever decides we're strategically important to them. But what about the British? Uh, highly unlikely they'll come back either. I mean, yeah. we sent them away with a sting well, in the we, tail. We might, we, might have the support, we might have the support of the Germans. And I, I think that might be the point that even if uh, we came under attack, uh, we have allies, don't we? We do have allies. And look, I mean, uh, Jim may or may not uh, agree with me here, but uh, I believe it's time that we had the public debate about neutrality and what neutrality should mean. We are not a neutral country. We never have been. But it's time that we had that debate. And neutrality requires uh, that at least our military would be aware of what's going on in the immediate area surrounding us. Uh, The Irish military have never gone to war. The Irish military have gone to peace all over the world, starting in the 1950s. And to this day, we're heavily involved in the uh, patrolling or uh, controlling or the management of peace throughout the world. And that is our forte. That's where we uh, shine on the world stage. And um, there, there is a great need to beef up our military because we're running out of people to uh, deploy on peace missions now. And that would be a terrible shame, not just for Ireland, but for the world at large. Uh, the, the, the Viper jets and the, the various other uh, nice-to-have things that are included in the €3 billion Euros, Yes, as, as, as a military, we should have these things. Um, but I cannot see, uh, with the pressures there are on public finances, particularly in the area of housing and health, I cannot see us spending anything like that money in the foreseeable future, certainly not in my lifetime. OK, Jim Roach, are we a neutral country or should we be a neutral country? <laughs> oh, that's the key question. And thanks, Michael. And... Uh, um, um, What's very interesting is that in um, several polls that were carried out uh, in recent years, and and these are proper polls, you know, done by proper polling agencies, uh, asking members, up to a thousand uh, members, etc., sorry, asking citizens uh, if if they valued Irish neutrality, quite a strong majority came back and said yes. And Jared is right in one like we're, we say we're neutral, but of course we're not neutral, and we're not u- neutral very simply because we allow uh, NATO forces to come into our uh, economic exclusion zones in in the waters around our coast. Uh, we do not criticise them in the way that we've seen the criticism against the Russian exercises. Um, we uh, allow, of course, the use of Shannon Airport for the last 19 years by the U.S. military, where millions of U.S. troops have passed through, rendition flights have passed through, uh, troops on their way to uh, fight disastrous wars that we know now have been absolutely disastrous for the for those countries in which they took place. And I think of Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, Syria, and other places. So awful. And if we, t- if I can, right now. I have a five-letter word written on the bottom of my sheet here. Yemen, a most horrific war happening in Yemen at the moment, being prosecuted by the U.S.-backed and British-backed 
Saudi Arabia and UAE forces against the people of Yemen. Horrific losses. 377 dead, mm. 10,000 children dead. And Ireland is, is colluding in this. It's colluding in it through two ways. One is mm. the obvious way of... of but does that not undermine allow, the argument no, that you made earlier on that we'll never be subject to a, an attack? Uh, ISIS says that we're colluding uh, with their enemies uh, and I think we were on a hit list at one stage. Sorry, sorry, I didn't quite get your point there, Michael. Sorry. I, I think that Ireland uh, was listed as a target by ISIS yeah. at one stage uh, because we are, are seen uh, as allies of ISIS enemies. Well, uh, it, there was a very good report done by the Washington Post, I think, seven years ago, looking at all the countries that took part in the extraordinary rendition uh, uh, um, program. And there's a map done of all the countries. And Ireland is on the map, just like America is. So, yes, I, I, I think in some ways we are. I mean, I, I wouldn't want to be scaremongering either, but we, we, we possibly are. But uh, if I can just go back to it, like, we are, we are um, colluding in wars around the world that are prosecuted by America in particular, but, but by NATO as well, because of our uh, uh, openness to uh, mm. effectively using, allowing the and an airport to be used as, as, as a war port. So th- this, I, I, that's why I would, act, I would absolutely support a broad political debate, a national debate on neutrality. No problem at all. Mm. I wouldn't disagree with that. Let's have it so that we, we, you know, these points can be made and uh, uh, revealed, if you like, and, 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 all, and all the horrors of the wars. And your argument is to end that type of association. If we are guilty by association, that we should end that type of association yes, I, with what you would consider to be war crimes. Jared Crockwell, what do you think of that? Um, now, the, the, Jim mentioned the Shannon Airport there, mm. and Shannon Airport has been bandied around for quite some time uh, with respect to American troops moving to and from various parts of the world. Um, there, there was a period, a short period during the Iraqi war when, in fact, the Americans should not have been allowed to use Shannon Airport because it had not been a UN mandated um, uh, engagement. But Shannon Airport is used under European, or sorry, United Nations uh, Chapter 7, I think it is. And um, we cannot be a member of the United Nations and not adhere to the requests of the United Nations. And one of those requests is that aircraft would be able to refuel and move on in Shannon. Jim mentioned the rendition flights, and clearly uh, there was an issue there. I'm not sure whether that issue is still there today or not. And that's probably down to the policing of the aircraft that come in. Uh, Aircraft should not be used for rendition purposes coming through Shannon. I would have no truck whatsoever with that. But look, I mean, Jim is right. There are, there are major powers in the world uh, scrapping over many, many different uh, areas of contention and Yemen happens to be one of the worst of them at the moment. Mm. But don't forget, after all the years of struggle in Afghanistan and all the promises that were made to the people of Afghanistan as a result of the, the, the um, Western forces moving in there to topple the Taliban, and here we are 20 years later the Taliban are back in power women are suffering as much as they did if not more uh, before the incursion or before the battles with the the, uh, joint forces Um, 
there is no doubt that there is an appetite for war amongst some uh, superpowers in this world. And Ireland, but why can't we ignore uh, it? Uh, I mean, in a country where we're living through a crisis, where people are going to bed with no food in their bellies and two overcoats on, they can't rub two pennies uh, together, why can't we ignore what uh, is happening elsewhere and ignore the defence forces uh, outside perhaps of uh, the likes of radar and cyber defence and whether the army is needed uh, to escort bank uh, money transfers and that sort of thing. Why do we need to involve ourselves in all of this? Why can't we take that money and use it on some of the domestic problems that we face here in reality? Okay, and that debate is going to happen now and I'm expecting a very robust debate on it. But one of the things I would say to you is that when we suffer from fire, storm, flooding, uh, any of these things, we need a defence force that's able to uh, come to the aid of the civil power immediately. Um, Right now we're in the middle of a tender process for search and rescue services in the country. It's going to cost this country €1 billion over 10 years with a private contractor why aren't we using the people that we have available within the military to carry out that service as they carry it out in other countries all over the world? Uh, so there needs to be a rethink in how we use our military and what we use our military for. And I believe that the document produced by the um, uh, Commission on the Future of Defence, which in fact I didn't have a lot of faith in when it started, but I'm extremely impressed by the mm-hmm. report that they have produced. And um, I fully support everything that they they are uh, suggesting that we do. But look, I mean, Ireland is a key uh, location for the superhighway, the information superhighway. We have a cable coming in from Iceland to Galway in the not-too-distant future, which will be the fastest data transfer cable in the world. And um, we need to see what's going on under the sea so as we can see what's happening there. We need to be able to see what's going on in our European economic uh, zone. Okay, Um, and I I think you probably, I'm sorry to cut across you, but I'm over time. I think you probably agree with that, Jim Roach, do you? Well, yeah, I agree with some of them, but one thing Derek did, maybe it was a mistake, he wants, uh, uh, he, or he would like to see all the, all the things in the report implemented. I, I mean, maybe, maybe he didn't mean to say that, but I absolutely agree in terms of, of what our, our um, uh, Defence Force have done in terms of the COVID pandemic, the, the flood victims, and the, the peacekeeping. I commend them on that, and, and they need to be paid properly, no question. But mm. just to go back to the, uh, the final point on, on neutrality, we need to, the Irish government must condemn unequivocally and equally the dangerous warmongering of both NATO and Russia over Ukraine. And it called for all military exercises around Ireland to stop. And it hasn't okay. done that. Okay. So that's the problem here. All right. I have to no, leave it there. I have gone way over time. So uh, I have thank to you, Michael, say good morning you. to both of you. And thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Jim Roach is the PRO for the Irish anti-war movement. We're also speaking with independent Senator Jared Crockwell. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, the Taoiseach was asked uh, continuously about housing in uh, the Dáil yesterday. There was a, a theme, more or less, to the questions that were being put to Hall Martin. How can anyone afford to rent somewhere to live in this country? If you can afford to rent, uh, how can you save for a deposit if you're paying between one and €2,000 a, me- a month on your rent? And if you can manage all that and you do actually 
manage to save up and get a deposit, what happens when you go to look for a house? Uh, quite often people find that they're being outbid by cuckoo funds, uh, which are apparently paying up to 32% more uh, on each property compared to the average price paid by household buyers in this country. Uh, I'm not sure that the Taoiseach uh, could answer those questions successfully. I'm not sure that I have the answers. Uh, let's see if uh, David Hall, who is uh, the Chief Executive Officer of uh, the Irish Mortgage Holders Organisation, has the answer to those questions. Or maybe it might be easier to ask you, David, uh, have you got this week's lotto numbers? Yeah, good morning, yeah. Michael. I think you might be better off having the, the lot of numbers <laughs> yeah. or trying to get them. Mm. I think, I think, like ultimately, you know, one of the components that was ignored uh, or not repeated yesterday was like when you invite cuckoo funds and vulture funds into the country and you roll out a red carpet, you create a tax incentive scheme for them. Um, you're only going to get a flurry of activity from cuckoo funds who are looking at them um, buying properties and renting them and treating them like a commodity. And I think the key part here is we as a society have to make a call that. Property um, is a home uh, for many people in the first instance. Yes, it's a business component, secondly to that. Mostly, first, in, first instance, it is a home for people, and it's a, it's a very important uh, part of everyone's lives and their aspiration to um, to rent a house. And it's not fair to say, by the way, which a lot of commentary comes, um, Michael, people say, oh, yeah, but renting's not bad either. Yeah, renting's not mm. bad, but renting in Ireland is not the same as renting in Germany. Mm. If you rent in Germany, it's a 30-year lease you're signing. Yeah. That effectively de facto makes that property your home because you have it for 30 years. Yeah. These all leases are all year by year. And as you saw yesterday in the report that was also mentioned as all, like 60% um, of people are being asked to leave rented properties. Um, uh, of those being asked to leave rented properties are because people are moving back into them, the landlord's moving back in, or they're allegedly renovating those properties. So, you know, yeah. there's, there's a lot of flexibility in relation to leases here which may gives no certainty at all. Yeah, and uh, I think there's probably concern amongst uh, those who are renting about uh, the retrofitting scheme and how that could lead to evictions or increases in rent. Well, it's, it's a massive excuse and it's unclear and I'm actually quite surprised, to be honest, that the department would have released the scheme like the retrofitting scheme without having the legalities in relation to tenant protections put in place because again the, their own report shows that of those people being asked to vacate properties and termination notices being given 60% of them are being done for repairs and this you know the retrofitting constitutes repairs now wearing my other hat in, in, in I care housing we just got a quote in for nine houses for retrofitting and the bill on average is 40,000 per house after the grant so retrofitting is possibly another elephant. I hope it's not from an, an environmental perspective and a climate perspective and indeed for, for heat uh, for many homes and houses. But ultimately the outlay is very, very significant and it's going to allow uh, landlords to use that as an excuse for people to move on and move out again. And, and again, appropriate protections to protect tenants needed to put in place before the retrofitting mm. campaign was, was launched, particularly when you've got evidence in front of you where already a significant number of people are being evicted uh, and their tenancies come to an end because of uh, repairs being done or indeed the landlord moving back into his property. Okay, for, for 40,000, is that what you said, after the grant? So you're talking about like, 65,000 retrofit these houses, yeah. is it? My God, that's yeah. unbelievable. Like, you know, it's a lot of work. Yeah. There's not yeah, that many yeah. companies yeah. doing them. They're expecting them to be done and, and it's, a very, it's very specialist yeah. work okay. um, and disruptive. Okay, uh, rent, renting might be fine. Uh, maybe people are earning a, a lot of money and they're not finding it too difficult to come up with the one or two thousand euro a, a month. But what will they do when they retire? 
Well, the one two thousand euro um, on the uh, is 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 one aspect of this. Um, like, mm. Well, there's a two and three thousand euro when you come to Dublin. Yeah. Okay. Um, but the, and, the, the uh, same question. I mean, it might be okay now when you're working. Uh, may not be for most people, but if it is all right for some people, uh, what will happen when they retire? Uh, will they still be expected to pay that level of rent? And that seems to be the difference between here and the German example that you gave earlier on. Yeah, exactly. And, and and the big challenge comes here is that to be eligible for social housing. Um, if you have any semblance of a pension. So we're being encouraged every day to get a pension. Uh, indeed, it's, being, it's law now that we start pensions for employees. So we have a pension when you retire. means your, your actual eligibility for stuff uh, and eligibility for assistance, state assistance related to accommodation is also removed. So you're in the worst possible position whereby in normal circumstances those in social housing or those with no income, be it social welfare income and uh, state pension, will be housed through the social housing system uh, in, in the event that they come to 65 and suddenly ho- only can rely on the state pension. But if anybody else has built up any semblance of pension that brings them over the qualifying criteria for income for social housing, they're in a really precarious position. Mm. So we have, a, we have a system that keeps referring to renting, keeps encouraging renting, and there's nothing wrong with renting. Hmm. What's wrong with renting is the uncertainty and the the level of of money being spent on renting because effectively housing is now a competition. Housing is the exact same as shopping. And competitors uh, from a rent perspective are now watching uh, what everybody else is doing and are setting the rent in accordance with what the market places, not what a fair return is, a reasonable return is, and not giving anybody any certainty. So I think we're in for a very difficult number of years. We're in for a very difficult number of years of prices increasing, which means mm. um, rents, and again, it shouldn't mean rents increase. But mm. the point is, from a competitive perspective, it will mean rents increase. We have to clip the wings of the vultures and clip the wings of any cuckoos uh, to make sure that there's no tax incentive for them to do it and to allow and flourish home ownership and honest landlording where people can be given long-term leases. But your question is a very good one, Michael, and it's a big difficulty for people who are going to come of a certain age. And also, one of the issues we're seeing and one of the teams we're seeing through iCare is people, unfortunately, get unwell as they get older. People get a bit more infirm. Mm. People get less mobile. So properties that they're in at the moment that are on the third floor of an apartment block where the lift is in on, uh, is mm. not a great working order becomes a great difficulty yeah, as well. When you and need, and a, bu- the, when you need a bungalow instead of a, a flat three floors up, yeah. And mm. it has a bungalow mm. been retrofitted. Yeah. So there's a whole host of challenges that are there. There is a housing for all uh, plan that set out very good aspirations for the Minister. I think some of the stuff is good, some of the stuff is unrealistic, mm. and some of the stuff is hopeful. And I think, unfortunately, the Minister's portfolio is too wide for what is a critical area um, and I saw him like talking about another important topic today about water and water treatment plants and people are looking saying let's just do one minister one topic of a crisis let's just do housing and uh, let's uh, use junior ministers to deal with the other areas that are contained in the department but housing is a major crisis a major problem and, and really is a great challenge for people and we also have 24,000 people in mortgage arrears still in their homes where the banks and the vulture funds have told the um, central bank 16,000 of those pe- those homes will be lost to repossession. So there's a very significant challenge of the landscape post-COVID. A whole host of funds for housing is a very difficult one and a very, very stressful one for people. Like people want to be able to be housed in a comfortable, safe environment uh, long-term when they know they are. Yeah. Got very tenuous renting agreements at the moment. Yeah. Do you think when we get to the end of 
this year, going into next year, that mortgage interest rates will start to rise uh, because it seems as though the ECB isn't going to do anything this year, but uh, that would uh, be uh, usual for them to do to offset inflation. Uh, We were told that inflation was only going to rise in the short term. Now we're being told it's the medium term, which you could interpret to mean that there's no end in sight. Uh, And uh, there is the prospect of the perfect storm in all of this, isn't there? Yeah, there is, and I think there's inherent risk. And there's also a risk, by the way, Michael, for banks as well, whereby some people will, will, will pay their mortgage last with, you know, the inflation. Like, inflation's very real. Mm. And inflation gets bandied around as a technical term with small percentages. Inflation is exceptionally real when it comes to making payments every week for household items and goods, and indeed for, for fuel, uh, for both heating and for their car and their home. And trying to live. People will always try and live and survive first, which they should do. And unfortunately, then, the, uh, the, the difficulty that's going to come is going to be for paying, paying mortgages, those are in difficulty. And I had a genuine fear that many people in the country as the year goes on currently have major difficulty in surviving at the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and many more will run into great difficulty with their mortgages and other uh, bills going on. And mm-hmm. then we run the risk of interest rates really coming uh, towards the end of the year and, and increasing. And then there is an inherent risk of that. And I think if that happens, it would be very, very difficult uh, for everybody concerned. And, mm. and as I say, we have to hope that things balance uh, as best they can from an incre- from, an, from an inflationary perspective. But ultimately, inflation is real uh, and it's much higher, in my view, on a practical, physical basis mm. than the anecdotal commentary being made around certain percentages. You know, fuel, on average, I saw reports the other day being published that mentioned fuel in, but it also categorised fuel into transport and a few other categories. Mm. That's fine. But that's, I said it was average of 16%, but fuel is 34%. Yeah, and recession follows inflation. Uh, it, it, it is just the nature of things uh, because people don't have the money, and when people don't have money, uh, they don't spend, and when people don't spend, you don't have confidence, and then you end up uh, in recession, uh, and it looks as though uh, it's going to get a whole lot worse before it gets better. I, I don't even remember a situation like this uh, where the government is going to uh, announce a number of things to put money directly back into people's pockets the way they are because everyone everyone is delusional now to be honest people are talking in the context of 200 euros fair enough but you know 200 euros is nothing 200 euros is nothing by comparison to the carnage and the difficulty people are having on a household basis every day fair enough but I I, I do remember like budgets and mini budgets uh, where maybe the welfare was being cut rather than trying to put extra money into people's pockets uh, but I I think uh, as you say 200 and that's probably the most worrying part about it because they're trying to give us a a, a few crumbs uh, and it's not going to make much difference how bad is it going to get and it's bad enough as it is and I'm just I don't know how perfect this storm is but are we looking at an 80s type recession which could lead to emigration on that scale again? And, and, and let's hope not. I think, as I say, there is some fiscal prudence there. There's, there's been some strength in the Department of, of Finance. I have a bit of confidence, to be honest, in, in, in Pascal Dunno. Never, never have agreed, haven't agreed with him on many things. But there's an element of confidence there in Michael McGrath. But ultimately, I think there's a big, big problem here. We have inflation that's there at the moment. We have a yeah. post-pandemic excitement financially where people have pent up money and are buying yeah. houses and buying other assets that are there. Will that last for the entire year? Will it fall off a cliff yeah. midway through the year? And we have the scaling back now of the pub payments and all the other associated payments. So we have a very uncertain number of months. And I think the word you use is about the potential of giving people, I don't need 200 euros. Mm. This needs to be targeted to people who need the 200 euros and giving them more in a proper, coherent way. Not giving somebody money they can spend 
unnecessarily on, on unnecessary items, but there are critical items, critical items, additional heat, and uh, milk has gone up. Like there's certain things I would never have noticed to, to mm. my shame yeah. of prices that have increased, Michael, in the last number of weeks, and I've seen them myself. Okay. We leave there for the moment. David, it's good to talk to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. David Hall is uh, the Chief Executive Officer of the Irish Mortgage Holders Organisation. And let's hear a, a little bit of uh, that dull debate yesterday. Uh, as uh, mentioned, there was a lot of pressure put on government about issues relating to housing. The latest rental report from daft.ie shows that rip-off rents are up another staggering 10% in the last three months of last year. New figures also revealed that cuckoo funds, courtesy of sweetheart tax deals provided by your government, massively outbid ordinary house buyers for family homes and then rent them back to those people at extortionate rates. This is Mary Lou MacDonald who also had this question. 1,500 euros or 2,000 euros a month for your rent. That is simply unaffordable. Catherine Murphy of the Social Democrats had a similar question. The the solution has been designed really favouring cuckoo funds over over the individual home buyer. I mean, that's that's the obvious thing that is happening here. Do you ever question that you could be getting this wrong? Like Fianna Fáil, I've got it wrong before. Do you ever question that you have, that you're talking to the wrong people or you're taking the wrong advice? Look at the evidence. Look at the evidence of the rent. Who can afford 2,000 euros a month rent in, in perpetuity? I mean, it's only going to be a question of time before we see people, young people, queuing up at the airport to leave this country. And they're going to be doing it because you can't live in it. You know, and housing is critical to that. So what is uh, the government, let's hear, what is the government doing? Let's hear from the Taoiseach. The Department of Housing, local government and heritage in the context of the Housing for All strategy have made have broken down that tenure type as follows in terms of our objectives. 11,800 new private ownership homes, 6,500 new private rental homes, 4,100 new affordable homes and 10,300 new social housing homes. So the state is putting in, in terms of investment, the largest amount of capital ever in terms of social and affordable housing and with clear targets in terms of reaching that 33,000 figure that we desperately need to get to. We were hit back last year in terms of supply because of COVID and the year before. There is a need in the market and there'll be demand in the market for 6,500 new private rental homes per year. Um, If the market supplies fewer than that number, then rents will rise even further. We cannot wish away, Deputy, the basic laws of supply and demand. We need more supply and we need it as quickly as we possibly can. And what about the cuckoo funds then outbidding first-time buyers? Now, in respect of funds and institutional funds and so on, we've already passed planning laws and taxation measures to stop the bulk buying of houses and homes in estates. You know that, and that is the position. And Board Planola has followed up uh, on that with recent decisions, uh, copperfacing those legislative changes uh, that the Minister um, made. And it was at that stage uh, that the Taoiseach took the gloves off and went at Sinn Féin, accusing that party as being part of the problem. If we restrict supply, the rents will go up. 
as sure as night follows day. We need supply, and what we do not need is serial objections, as your party have, okay. to Tala, to Tonnebeit, right across. You have objected to about 6,000 houses, Sinn Féin have, objected to them, please, now the and voted against them happening. Now that, to me, is hypocrisy when, when put in contrast with the huge crisis that we have in terms of housing. I'm fed up with this T-shirt lying about what Sinn Féin councillors are doing. They are right It is out. It is not acceptable to accuse any member. It is not acceptable to accuse any member of the House of lying. I would ask you to withdraw that clip. It's dishonest. Please withdraw the accusation of lying. It is out of order. You know it. You know it is. So are you substituting misleading the house? I'm more than happy to substitute willingly misleading the house for lying. Thank it's the you. same thing, Thank you. Skin and hair flying in uh, the doll yesterday. Ono Bryn stepping down a, a little bit uh, about what the Sinn Féin TD had to say uh, about uh, the Taoiseach's integrity in the doll yesterday. Michael Reed on LMFM. If you are finding it uh, difficult uh, to cope, it won't come as any uh, way of relief uh, to you, uh, but um, you will be interested to know you're not the only one. In around a fifth, just under a fifth of people are finding it difficult to cope, as you've been hearing from uh, the St. Vincent de Paul poll, which was uh, done for them by Red Sea. Uh, it's 18% who are finding it difficult to manage financially, and that's double uh, the figure since uh, before the pandemic, eight or from 9 to 18%. Uh, and let's hear a little bit more about this poll. Izzy Petri is is the Research and Policy Officer with the Society of St. Vincent de Paul. Good morning to you, Izzy. Thanks uh, for joining us here on uh, the programme this morning. Uh, and the result of all of this is that people have cut back uh, on some very fundamental things uh, that we would expect in their everyday lives. Yeah, that's exactly right. So our survey found that more and more people are finding it difficult to manage financially since the start of the pandemic, doubling from 9% of people last year to 18% of people finding it difficult to get by this year. And, you know, as we all know, costs are rising um, and the impact of this that we're seeing at SVP is people just aren't able to meet the the essential cost of living, leading um, to bills that can't be paid, not being able to heat or light homes, Mm. cutting back on essentials like food at the end of the week. So that's why we're really concerned that without those targeted measures that we need to see from government today, that this situation will kind of continue to get worse for people into the year. Yeah, they're tough decisions, aren't they? Uh, uh, when you haven't got uh, the money to go around and you have to decide whether to he- <coughs> excuse me, to eat or heat your home. Yeah, exactly. And so at SVP, we support people who are, you know, really concerned about the increases in the bills and the outgoings they're seeing. So their energy bills are going up. Um, the essentials like paying the rent are getting more difficult and things like, you know, if they need a car to get to work or live rurally, that's also another expense. And even before these increases in the cost of living, many people um, were living on inadequate incomes already and budgets will only stretch so far and, you know, with rising costs people are reaching the end of at the end of the week and there's not enough left to meet food costs to top up the energy meter. So that's why SVP are really concerned about the people who we support who are at home without the heating on or they aren't able to afford the food shop. Yeah, the amount of people who are cutting back on heating and electricity really is dramatic. 37% of people have decided they have to cut back. 
yeah, exactly. That's you know, it's, it was a really big, a big number that we found in our survey, and I suppose it reflects um, what we see at SVP, which is people who are already struggling are having to make those difficult decisions, but also you know, more people who may not have struggled before are also now faced with those difficult decisions. Mm. And also, what came out there in the surveys that heating costs. You know, people are cutting back on their heating, but it also impacts other areas of life. So um, 17% of people reported cutting back on other essentials like their food due to rising energy prices. So it affects people in lots of different ways and it's affecting more and more people. Mm. And what does it mean in terms of heating? Is it that people are heating one room or they're going without heat at times or um, they're wearing two overcoats or what is it? Yeah, it's exactly that. And, you know, people um, try and limit their costs in a range of ways. So um, people might only use energy for, you know, half an hour at a time, only put put their heating on just when the kids are home from school for a short while. People will definitely be wearing coats inside and things like that. And this all has, you know, a growing and increasing impact on people's well-being, their their mental well-being and also their physical health. Mm. So that's why we need to sort of get those measures in there to try and help people as soon as possible and help people, you know, on the right scale, the Mm. right scale of support so that they don't have to make those really, those difficult choices and take those difficult measures. Yeah, it was bitterly cold last night, bitterly cold uh, again today. And that figure increases uh, when you look at unemployed people in isolation. It increases to nearly half uh, of uh, the people in this country who are unemployed uh, cutting back on heating and electricity uh, as you say mental health is a thing when you're sitting in a room freezing cold like that and uh, hungry no doubt to boot uh, it really can take uh, its toll on you yeah definitely and you know as you say we we see SVP and we also saw in the survey that the groups who were already struggling before the pandemic and then also struggled, struggled during the pandemic are the people who are being most affected by the rising cost of living. So, you know, what came out in the survey is uh, lone parent families, people who are out of work, people who are renting. These are the groups that are being most affected right now. Mm. And what about food? Um, what kind of cutbacks are, are people making in that sense, we all have to eat, eat obviously. Um, uh, how much are people cutting back? Well, people do just, you know, people make really difficult choices. So if they're a parent, they will prioritise, you know, their children eating over those, over themselves. Also, pe- people will cut back on the amount of food that they can afford, but also the quality of food. So not being able to eat as much, you know, fresh veg or or things like that mm. that they would want to and having to kind of go right back to the basics and, and cut back on themselves, you know, before they would cut back for their children. Right. Uh, it's a dire situation, no doubt. Uh, and people are worried that it's going to get worse as well. Yeah, so it does seem... Whereas maybe before Christmas we thought there might have been some relief, it does now look like this might be, you know, into the more medium term. And so that's why we, we're really keen on seeing those targeted supports from government as soon as possible. So targeting people through increases in social welfare payments, mm. in particular funds for people who are struggling with their energy costs and struggling with different areas of the cost of living. So that's, I mean, I guess that's why we see it as so important that those those decisions are made today and as soon as possible. Mm. From what you understand or what uh, you understand of what's expected to be announced later on, uh, would you be hoping uh, that uh, there'll be 
something else done down the line? I mean, we're talking about uh, the energy credit at 100 euro or 113 euro being doubled. Uh, the fuel allowance may be extended out. Uh, there won't be increases in social welfare, it seems. And uh, it seems as though there'll be little done uh, by way of VAT or any of these other things that would require a mini budget. Is a mini budget what is required if uh, the specific areas that you're talking about are to be targeted? Well, we definitely think that, you know, the top priority for a, uh, a way to support people would be through increases in those core welfare payments and then extra support for, for families who have children um, and working families with children through the working family payment, but also targeting, you know, particular um, areas of the cost of living. So increasing the fuel allowance season would really uh, support people, so increasing that by four weeks and, you know, keeping that under review throughout the year um, and then establishing um, those particular funds, those discretionary funds to support people who are, who have got into difficulty with their energy bills, with being able to afford their rent. So we do really see those core welfare payments as really important, but also other, other ways of supporting people as well. Okay, Izzy, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Sean Defoe will be with us a little bit later on. He'll be telling us what to expect from uh, that government announcement later in the day. But thanks, as I say, to Izzy Petrie, Research and Policy Officer with uh, the Society of St. Vincent de Paul. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, as you probably heard earlier in the week, uh, the Oireachtas Committee on Enterprise, Trade and Employment has recommended uh, that all employees would be entitled to sick pay. Uh, It's one thing being on low pay, but if you're out of work and you're getting no pay, uh, then you're obviously facing into a a difficult situation. This would be on a statutory basis. And we're joined by a member of that committee, uh, Senator Marie Sherlock of the Labour Party. And a very good morning to you thanks indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, this will be phased in over a period of time. There may be some people uh, who'd be surprised to think uh, that uh, there are people who are employed full-time uh, who don't get sick pay. How is that the case? Good morning, Michael. It's you and, and to all your listeners. So the reality is that only about half of the workforce in this country have access to um, paid sick leave arrangements within their workplace, and of course, we, you know, we 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 don't even have official data on that. So we've had to extrapolate that from from a number of different surveys, and 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 so there's a real concern that um, that th- those who tend to have access to paid sick leave within their workplace tend to be higher income uh, workers, and and of course, we know for low income workers when they're sick, they face a very high cost of going to the doctor. And then I suppose the do- there's the double family of being out of pocket because, yeah. of course, it's three days before they're able to, to access the state's illness benefit. So, you know, the Labour Party has been campaigning on this since September 2020. I think this is one of the, 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 the things that was brought into very sharp focus in the early days of the pandemic, particularly in our meat factories and in other employments, the lack of paid sick leave. And so the Labour Party brought forward its bill in 2020. The government have subsequently published their own bill. And I suppose we believe that falls far short of what is required. So, you know, as part of the the, 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 the various legislative phrases, the, the Joint Directors Committee on Enterprise, Trade and Employment mm. had to engage in pre-legislative scrutiny of the government's bill. And yesterday we published that report. And I suppose there's five key recommendations in that, um, that, that, that report to government yesterday. And in particular, I suppose the first recommendation is that a paid sick leave should be available to all workers, regardless of their length of employment. Uh, 
And so, that's three days a, a year beginning next year, but that goes up to 10 days a year by 2025. It does, and I suppose well, I have a real concern about that in terms of that, that that's actually not written into the legislation. That's a promise by government. And of course, it's fine to have promises, but actually to ensure that it's actually going to happen is another thing. So, so for us, um, what's, what's really vital is to make sure that the 10 days that the government has said they're going to do, that that's written into the legislation. But I suppose most importantly that it's available to all workers because we have a situation where the government's bill says that it's only available to workers after 13 weeks of continuous employment. So you can think of seasonal workers, you think of, of uh, those working uh, in the ECC scheme, so in, in, in terms of preschool where they leave their job every mm. June and start back their job every September and indeed there are other workers who you know uh, will have breaks in service and so they will have to start their 13 weeks every single year and so there's a real problem in that in terms of again excluding some of the lowest paid workers so we believe that uh, paid sick leave is available to all workers I think the other issues with regards to um, the, the government requirement uh, for all paid sick leave to be on foot of a, a sick note from the GP mm. And, and in an ideal world, if we had uh, uh, free GP care for, for everybody in the state, yeah. that's something mm-hmm. I suppose in Labour we're very much committed to. But of course, we don't have that. We have a very high cost of going to the doctor. Mm. And also... 56 a euro a pop, absolutely. And, absolutely. Yeah, but, yeah, also, yeah. but also, as your listeners will attest, you know, it, there's a difficulty in accessing your doctor in a timely fashion. <laughs> yeah, so like true, I said, yeah. if you're to ring your GP today, many GPs may not be able to offer you an appointment, particularly if it's not, you mm. know, critical. You know, they may not be able to offer you an appointment for, 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 for a good number of days. And, and we know that many out-of-hours doctor services will mm. not provide you with a sick search. So there's an issue with regards to the cost and accessing a GP. So we have said in the committee that we believe it's really, it's important to recognise that access to limited self-certified sick leave is is, is, is important. Mm. And, 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 uh, that, and, that, and that's usual, isn't it? I mean, uh, what is it, two and a half days, I think, would be usual at the moment? Yeah, so we, mm. so we know in many workplaces mm. yeah. that like is in that that requirement for for certified, mm. uh, you know, for for, for a, me- a medical cert only kicks in after you know day three or day four of being mm. sick. And you know, I think you know again, and, and many of our listeners will appreciate this. You know, somebody might get up in the morning and they may have a very bad sore throat, or they may have something else that means that they can't go to work that day. But if they nip it in the bud that day, it means mm. that they it may not develop into something bigger. And I suppose this is the real big issue that like is in somebody you know having to choose between between, you know, going to work or being out of pocket, mm. you know, they, they, they'll force themselves to go to work, but they may end up with far more significant health issues then. Well, and that's so it. You'll really hear people say, I can't afford to take a, a day off sick. Pre- so, precisely. So what and happens with the 56 euro? If you have to get a cert and you do go to the doctor and you can get an appointment and you pay 50 euro to see the doctor to get your cert, uh, what happens then? Uh, because you're recommending that that would be refunded somehow. Yeah, so I suppose what we're saying is that if the government are absolutely insisting that medical certification is required, and again, you know, we have said that we don't believe that that is practical, uh, but if they're insisting that, uh, that that the medical certification is required, that there has to be a rebate um, uh, to, 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 to workers, because... The, the, the reality of the government bill, uh, you know, only provides for up to 70% of a day's earnings, uh, for, you know, in, in, if a person is out sick, mm. right? So a person is going to be out of pocket anyway, right, to, 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 to the extent of 30%. But if you think about it, if you're a minimum wage worker or a low wage worker mm-hmm. and, 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 and you have to fork out 60 euros per day, 
yet the most that you could ever earn if you're on the minimum wage per day is something of the order of just over 50, 54 euros, then, you know, like as in, you're going to weigh up that actually it's yeah. going to cost you to take that sick day. Um, and, and, and so there's a real issue with regards to that. And what um, if you were sick one day a, a month for 10 months? Uh, would you have to go to the doctor 10 times uh, to get a, a cert and would that be then refunded uh, to you by the state or by the well, employer? Well, 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 I suppose, you know, it's important to bear in mind that, 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 that the 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 Oireachtas Committee's report yesterday is a set of recommendations. Mm-hmm. We, you know, we, 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 the ball is now in the government's court to essentially work out the logistics. But, 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 but I suppose we have very clearly stated yesterday, and this is a, you know, a, mm-hmm. a report that has commanded cross-party support, both government parties and opposition parties, where we have said that, you know, we, it's important to recognise that there should be self, that there should be self-certified. Um, uh, sickly. Yeah, uh, I, I imagine I, some employers will have a, a problem with that because some employees will see paid sick leave as leave they're entitled to, and if they're entitled to ten days off, they'll take that off on top yeah. of the holidays that they're entitled but, but, to. But 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 I would have to say to employers, like you know, in the first instance. Um, you know, do you really want your workers to be coming in if a they're sick, and if and, and if a person is not sick, um, then you know management has to you know kick in then in terms of like is in so if, if if you know if there's if there's persistent uh, calling into work of of of, uh, of 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 a person and and to be fair you know we often hear about these examples and yet when I ask for you know concrete evidence from employers I get very little of that. Mm. Um, so, so, so because it's very hard to establish. I mean, you're not even allowed to ask somebody what's wrong with them. Yeah, but 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 I I think the key thing is we need to be careful that we don't exaggerate something that you know. Um, oh, you know, I know, but at the same time, it is a valid point that some employers will make. I mean, you don't need a sick search. You don't need to say what's wrong with you. You just call in and say, "I won't be in. I'm sick." That's the end of it. Yeah, but I suppose the key thing is right. Uh, like as in, it, you know, the, the, the government legislation is only providing for up to three days. So um, now we're arguing, obviously, that it should be much more extensive than that. But you know, uh, like the the, the the reality is that under the government's legislation, a worker would only be able to take up to three days paid leave in the first year of this bill being enacted. So I think ultimately the key issue here is, um, uh, like as in, you know, uh, an employer will know their workers. Um, really well, or if they don't, you know, they should. Um, and I think this 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 notion that this is going to be open to widespread exploitation, I don't believe that's the case. Like I said, you know, the the, the other side of this is that if somebody is taking a number of days uh, consecutively um, off sick, and they don't, you know, th- there should be a requirement after a period of days for a sick start because if, if a person is sick for three or four days, then they are very sick, and they do need to go to get medical advice and get medical attention. So I think the thing is we need to be careful about not exaggerating the extent to which there could be perceived exploitation of the scheme. The reality is that there are workers out there now today who, you know, should be at home recuperating but are going up because they're out of pocket. Mm -hmm. And particularly that's lower wage workers but it's not confined to lower wage workers. I think the other thing is to say to employers is that, you know, there's an acknowledgement and a recognition that some employers who particularly if they have to get somebody else in to cover um, for the person who's out sick. And we know that that only happens in a small number of employments, but it happens in, you know, not all, but it does happen in some employments, particularly like retail and and other customer-facing employments. There is a recognition that an employer should be able to plead an inability to pay. And if that is the case, 
and they go through the labour court and there's an inability to pay, then uh, the social insurance fund should pay paid sick leave to the worker um, uh, and, 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 and that a charge is effectively on the employer then in the event of going to. But, but, but the key thing is that there's mm. a recognition that a worker could, uh, or that an employer um, uh, you know, I, I suppose may, may be unable to pay, particularly because we know that there's so many employments at the moment, so many workplaces that are trying to get back up on their feet after the pandemic um, in certain sectors. So, you know, I, I think there's there's a fair balance in the in the in the Joint Rockets Committee report that came out yesterday. Mm-hmm. But the reality is that Ireland stands apart from so from most other EU member states in not having a statutory right to paid sick leave. And it is high time that we actually implement this this year. Like I said, we've had promises that this this is going to be coming quick. But you know, yep. we've been talking about this since 2020, and we're now into 2022, and <laughs> yeah. it's still you know we'll, yeah. we've still yeah. to see this enacted. Uh, I think some of us have been talking about it uh, for even longer than that. Uh, but uh, time will tell when it'll be enacted. If it is enacted, uh, we leave it there for the moment, though. And thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the program uh, this morning. That's Labour Party Senator Marie Sherlock. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's go to our political correspondent Sean Defoe. Good morning, Sean. Thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, we've been hearing about uh, this Red Sea poll for St. Vincent de Paul. Uh, nearly a fifth of the people in the country are feeling the pinch. Big announcement expected from government uh, this evening. What will they be saying and how far will it go uh, in helping people to cope financially? That's the real question that we've been asking today. And I look, it's going to be a fairly substantial package certainly uh, pre-COVID we would have set these figures incredibly substantial we've gotten used to money being thrown around as if it's nothing but sort of 400 to 450 million is, is the amount of the package that it may be and there's going to be two parts to it this was what Leo Varadkar was saying quite clearly yesterday that there needs to be something for everyone some universal part of this because everyone is struggling and people that you would have thought would be on very good wages and mightn't be feeling the pinch as much people are on 40 and 50 grand as he, he put it um, they are feeling the pinch of this the cost of living has shot up and everyone is feeling it in, you know, in all sorts of bills. So the universal element of it is likely to be an increase in this energy subsidy already. It was announced that we're going to get €100 euro each household, €100 euro off their electricity bills. That's likely to be uh, raised, the two figures being talked about, 150 or €200, euro. so either a doubling or raising it up to €150 euro for every household. And that would be a significant cost. The €100 euro on its own cost €210 million to do so already. You would be doubling that. And then after that, there's the more targeted measures with the people who are... Uh, hit a bit harder by this, who maybe are on lower salaries, who maybe are on social welfare, who inflation does hit harder because they they simply don't have the money. And there's a few bits being looked at there. One of them... um and uh, being, for example, the the uh, family payment that was announced in the last budget, the increase of the the working for, uh, family payment of uh, ten euro a week, it's likely that's going to be brought forward from the initial date that it was due to start in the summer. And I think that's where a lot of the focus, Michael, has been over the last twenty four hours. It's measures that were put into the budget that haven't yet taken effect. A lot of them obviously take effect at the start of the year or a few months in. So things like, for example, the announcement in the budget that um, young people aged between 19 and 23 would get half-price public transport. There's been a, an examination to see whether that date could be brought forward from the summer when it was meant to, to kick in. So a lot of sort of smaller measures that are more targeted fuel allowance another big one the two discussions being either extending it beyond the end of April and its current date or uh, or giving double payments for example for a month or for a certain period of time so they're the sort mm. of broad suite of measures that you're okay. looking at Alright but there won't be an increase in welfare rates or there won't be a reduction in the VAT rates will there? No what ministers have been pretty keen to stress particularly the, the two ministers for purse strings in, in 
signs, Mr. Pascal Donahue and public expenditures, Michael McGrath, said that this can't be uh, an addition to our every year spending. In other words, whatever they're going to do today is going to have to be a one-off that they can't go adding hundreds and millions of euro that not only has to be paid this year, but will have to be paid every year because there's no way you could then reduce it in the upcoming budget. So it is going to be a one-off and that pretty much rules out any sort of broad social welfare increases, which are, are they're one of these strange ones we get every budget, Michael, where people only get a little, but it costs an awful lot to do it. Putting the fibre across the social welfare a week, which isn't a huge amount into people's pockets, cost 500 million euro to do in the last budget. So you're talking about very, very big figures here. And the same with VAT cuts. What the government is saying there is that we already have a derogation when it comes to fuel. We charge it at 13 and a half percent the VAT and that if we were to, to go lower, if they were to reduce it to 5%, say, to just to pick a figure, that that derogation with the EU would then expire and then at whatever date, six months down the line, hmm. uh, we have to revert. It will go back to the, the 22% level that most European countries pay. So you would be doing something in the short term that would have much more of a thing six months down the line when we're heading into the next winter. So I don't see any VAT cuts coming either. Okay, people will be hoping against hope that there will be some relief. Uh, a lot of people are, I think, very anxious to hear what the government has to say. When will we hear from them, Sean? It's going to be an evening time announcement, so you will be waiting a, a little bit this evening. I suppose we're getting used to them with the COVID announcements. We thought we were done with these evening time trips to government buildings, but no longer. So that the timing for the Cabinet Subcommittee on Economic Affairs is uh, four until six, and then it will be sometime after that. The Cabinet has uh, derogated the decisions of the ministers this evening, even though there's only five or six of them, can actually make a final decision. It doesn't need to go back to a full Cabinet. And the T-shirt tomorrow is you to travel to France for a summit. So it's, it's going to be this evening, but it'll probably be late enough this evening. OK, Sean. Thank you indeed. Uh, for joining us uh, this morning, our political correspondent, Sean Defoe. Now, thanks uh, to Bernie, who was in touch with us about her opening piece this day. She says, I'm not siding with anyone, but if an opposition TD is looking for information, they should get a, a response. Uh, this is relating uh, to the local Garda divisions. And she says, it shouldn't matter what your politics is, but it seems Imelda Munster is sending letters and is being ignored. The communication, I feel, from all government sectors is lacking. I'm living in uh, the Laytown, Bettystown district, and I, I really don't care what to we're in once the Gardaí respond it really doesn't matter to me where they come from once they come as quickly as possible and deal with the situation well that says uh, it uh, very clearly and uh, sums it up uh, quite nicely I think uh, thanks for that thanks too to Lorraine who says it makes sense that if something happens in Bettystown, for example, that the Gardaí from Drogheda respond as they're closer. We need more Gardaí on the beat in all towns and villages and they need to be visible on the ground. Thank you uh, as well, Lorraine, uh, for calling us today. Mark and Navin about uh, the Defence Forces on the phone to us saying we are a neutral country, so why the need to invest so much money in the Defence Forces? That's a a debate I think that has only just started uh, and uh, thanks uh, for having your say in it. Uh, Siobhan has been in touch with us too. She says, I'm in my third and I'm single. I'm saving. I'm trying to buy my own home. But the chance of having enough seems to be moving further away because of uh, the increases. I'm paying rent, but not as much as most people because I'm renting from a family member who is not charging the going rate, thankfully. However, it's still hard to save a lot with the cost of utility bills increasing so much. I've no hope of social housing because of my income, but I don't earn enough to get a mortgage for a house that I can afford, which means I have to keep trying to save as much as I can to have the balance. I really do worry about the future. Well, thank you for sharing that with us as well, Siobhan. That's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. 
the Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.